You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. This is Reverend Brian Moore of the Church of Satan. Welcome to Nine Cents, and I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It's February 26th, and I've got a great show for you this week. Before we start the show, I have a couple of things I want to touch on. First and most important, today is my daughter's birthday. Happy birthday, sweetheart. I love you very much. Today we went ice skating, and we, uh, you know, did the little birthday cake and presents and everything. She's actually taking a nap, which is why I'm able to record this now. Um, she is, uh, an amazing little girl right now. Uh, scary. I almost called her a woman there. No, she, she's a very young, uh, little girl, but she is definitely what my grandma and, uh, many elderly might say is an old soul. She is, uh, really a lot older than her age in her speaking and her behaviors. Uh, still a child, of course. But you can see that there is um, there's an intelligence there that I would like to think comes from uh, the parents, maybe? But you never really know. You know, I could be tooting my own horn there. Uh, anyway, amazing girl. We got her a, a number of presents, one of which I wanted to talk to specifically was a necklace I ordered from Bitchcraft. Um, and the name of it makes it sound inappropriate, but actually it was a custom piece that I had asked her to create and very wonderfully did. Um, and my daughter loved it. So Bitchcraft is kick-ass and I'm going to have them on a future show talking about what else they have to offer and really good stuff. So another thing that happened, my son plays with a couple of other kids in the neighborhood one of them is this uh, Asian boy, and we knew early on that his parents are ab- abusive, verbally abusive, and borderline physically abusive. Uh, they, like, smoke weed in the house, and, you know, on the scale of drug use around kids, I think there should be a zero tolerance, Um but if you're going to smoke cigarettes around your kid, I don't necessarily see how being in another room smoking uh, weed outside from the legality is any better. It's still going to harm their respiratory system, uh, their development of their brain, just like cigarette smoke would. And it's just one of those things where, as an adult, you need to take responsibility and not do that around your kid. If you're going to throw your life away um, on explicitly illegal activities, that's your choice. That's fine. But you're dragging your kid down into it. So we had suspected that they were um, not the best of parents. But I guess uh, some of the other kids that the family hangs around have learned some more about how abusive they are to this boy. And it gets to the point where, I mean, I'm a firm believer that, you know, you stay out of other people's business. All right. They're going to run their lives how they want to. And if it was an adult, I wouldn't even think twice. But the fact is, 
It's a little boy. And I have a big problem with adults treating their children the way that this boy is treated. We've gone out of our way to have the kid eat over at our house, so at least he's getting something. He'll have a couple bites, like like we had him over and um, we ordered uh, Five Guys Burgers, which are actually really good, side note. But the kid had like one bite and he was like, I'm done, I'm full. I'm like, are you okay? Like, what do you normally eat at your house? And it's always rice. Like, that's all he eats. Literally. Rice. I mean, he he's, you know, under 10 and he's talking about suicide. He's talking about how horrible his life is. Um, how uh, he just hates going home. Now, these are all blatant signs that there's something wrong. Now, you can run across the occasional melodramatic kid saying, Oh, my life sucks. I hate my life. I want to kill myself. And that's sort of par for the course. kind of comes up every once in a while in every kid's life whenever they are, you know, kind of going through a tough spot. Now, that could be, again, a sliding scale. You know, some kids don't actually ever get to saying that. Uh, Some kids only say it for effect because their parents get a reaction. Um... Specifically, this kid, I don't think he was kidding. Um, so my wife and I talked about it a little bit, and, you know, it just came down. We had to we had to call it in. It, again, I, I really don't like getting involved in other people's affairs, but when it's a kid, I, I, I just, I felt like I had to, right? I say I had to. My wife was the one that called it in, so, you know, we felt like she should do something, and so she did. The outcome was less than desirable, however, as they informed us that as long as a kid's eating, even if it is just rice and he's underweight, then he's eating. And this makes sense. They also said that they can't start an investigation off of hearsay. But at what point does it warrant investigation? I mean, because we're not immediately involved in the kid's life, Obviously, something needs to be done. Now, you know, putting the shoe on the other foot, I'd be a little bit pissed off if someone called in, um, you know, a, a situation with us and my family, and then all of a sudden social services showed up knocking at my door. But then that would be quickly alleviated by, you know, there's no sense of abuse, there's nothing, you know, they would all have been fabricated. I would rather that moment, that brief moment of uncomfortable uh, fright as a parent, and then quickly alleviate that with truth than to have a kid go on continued abuse, knowing that it's happening. So we contacted the school, and we're going to allow them to sort of spearhead this effort. It's none of, you know, bottom line, it's none of my business. But something has to be done. I mean, this poor kid, I just... And, you know, it's one of those things where, yes, it's sad. And yes, it's a kid who's suffering. Is he going to be better if they take him away and live with the state? Is he? Like, that's a that's a valid question and something that we thought about. Like, I, I don't know that he's going to be in a better environment. Quite honestly, it could end up being worse. A lot worse. And so, it, it's one of those, just game of chance. You know, what do you do? What do you think is right? And should you even bother? I mean, there's one time where uh, behind my house is a rental property on the other side of this uh, fence. And we had neighbors who were fighting verbally and the guy I was back in my backyard raking and the guy was back there saying that he was going to hit his wife and his wife was like yeah go ahead and hit me see what you got you know let's see how much of a man you are the I mean these people were white trash so straight up 
immediately, I'm like, I'm fucking not getting involved at all. But had I heard a smack, had I heard like him physically assaulting her, I can't promise that I wouldn't have jumped that fence. Um, just because of, you know, personal history with it. But the idea that if I did, and this sort of goes to the further point that I'm trying to make with this entire rant here, she would have, I would have been beating that guy's ass. I mean, bloody. I, I would have been tearing his ass up. She would have been hitting me, pulling me off, telling me to stop hitting her boyfriend, who just seconds ago was beating her ass. Like, this is the type of people we're dealing with. So this is specifically why I usually just don't even think twice about it. I just, like, turn my head and, you know, let them live their own lives and beat each other up, and I don't care. It's none of my damn business. And it's one of those ideas where you cannot help someone that doesn't want to be helped. More to the point, you should not want to help someone because you're not getting anything out of it at all. They're not getting anything out of it at all. And the only reason why I even bothered with the in the kid's case is because they genuinely he has a chance to succeed in life given the opportunity. And I don't think you should fucking abuse your children. Uh, I, don't know, I mean, it's just something that happened, and I felt like you know it was worth talking about. At what point do you realize that the sheep are going to be sheep, um, and the occasional wolf amongst the sheep is not your fucking problem? And does that stop it, kids? I mean, I don't think there's ever a black and white situation. Um, or in this case, yellow. <laughs> okay. Horrible racist joke. But y- you get my point. Um, okay, and then last of all, I just want to shoot out a really quick congratulations to Storm. Uh, first degree Satanist. Congratulations, man. You deserve it. So, in today's Devil Advocate, we're going to be talking about love and hate. This is from the Satanic Bible. Uh, I'm just going to sort of give you my little take on it. In the Infernal Informant, I was given an article, and I'm going to uh, read it. Trial against UNM begins, and California Girl 11 dies following planned after-school fight. And in the Creature Feature, I have an interview with Brian Moore. That's right, Reverend Brian Moore of Arkham Studios. I've talked to him last year, but he's had a lot of stuff going on since the last time I talked to him, and I wanted to touch base and, you know, kind of get an update, because there are a lot more projects that he has available that I think are absolutely worth... I mean, this Brian Moore is an amazing uh, man. He, he's a good friend. He is an unbelievably talented sculptor. Definitely check him out. And that's going to do it for the show. So sit back, hold tight, grit your teeth, and we together will get through another Nine Cents starting now. Say why bother? How you done? Great. Let's cut the bullshit and get real. Why this purity you feel about evil? For Christ's sake, why? They don't lie to me. I guess, Father. You gotta feel that old nick in your soul, and it becomes clear. Like it did for me, the first time. That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that? Shit, man. (laughs) I'm a born devil's advocate. 
Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Love and hate, y'all. Alright, this is actually, I guess you would say chapter, but it's only a couple pages in the Satanic Bible. Definitely, you know, and this is just sort of, if if you don't know this article or this, this chapter, this part of the Satanic Bible, if you have not read the Satanic Bible, you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast. I mean, I'm sure there's people who pop in every once in a while and hear what I have to say, end up not liking it and never <laughs> listening again. I'm okay with that. But if if you are listening to this on a regular weekly basis and you haven't grabbed and read the Satanic Bible, um, you're not getting it from the source. I'm I'm not doing this to educate anyone about what it means to be a Satanist or what Satanism is. That is not my intent. My intent with this is solely to point out and give my perspective of portions of Satanism. Now, as mentioned already, I do not represent the Church of Satan, so you should not be listening to this, taking this for Church of Satan law. No such thing. But, you know, just saying, I am not a representative. Keep that in mind. This is just my perspective. Okay, so love and hate. The idea that is tossed out there is that without having ever experienced love in its truest form, how are you even capable of experiencing hate? And how do you know where those lines are drawn? Especially if you're like a, a Christian and you're, you're taught your entire life to love thy neighbor and uh, turn the other cheek and love the fellow man, even the ones that are shitting on you, even the ones that are uh, abusing you or stripping you of your rights uh, in whatever society you live in. If you're supposed to love them, those that are deserving of hate, how do you differentiate what love means and what hate means? Because you are literally erasing the lines that should be there telling you which is which. If those that abuse you are worthy of love, how can you ever hold to esteem anyone that really is worthy of love? I mean, how... And if you're that person in, if if you're uh, uh, in a relationship with a Christian, if your lover is a Christian, if your father, mother, how do you know if you are really loved? If they love everyone, that even the people they hate, or how do you know they really don't just hate you? Because that's what they're taught love is. It's what tolerance. As Satanists, we <laughs> understand that there are there are extremes in our world. All manufactured by us, of course, uh, but no less extremes and needed. If we don't know what it means to know real passion and love and affection, even without sexual gratification, then how are we ever to know if someone is truly worthy of our hatred? I mean, I, I know in my life, for example... I have um, my wife, I love to my very core, more than anything in this world. Um, I love my children uh, very much. And it wasn't until I had kids that I, I really could put things into perspective. Because I was always sort of raised, well, there's this idea of what love is, and 
But until you see something that you literally created, until you play God, and you look down at this thing that without you literally would not exist, and without your continued attention and affection will not live. I mean, you truly feel that power. And, and you can't help but but see the folly in this creature, but know that it's yours, and through that, the love just comes pouring out. There was a point after uh, my son and my daughter were born where they were... Uh, put under the little incubator thing that I like to call it. I don't know what the real name is. And they're wrapped up. And then, um, you know, my wife is being tended to by the doctor. And uh, they hand me the baby. And I'm sitting there bawling my eyes out, holding a, a piece of me. And the amazing part is, is that, yes, you helped create it, but it is completely, at this point and, and forever from this point, something completely separate from you. And there's a sort of humble respect that comes with the the majesty of life at that moment. It's hard to explain, but that's when I truly knew love. I thought I hated people up until that point. I, I truly did. And though I held grand animosity for them, it was nothing compared to the emotion I was having at those moments for my children and for my wife. And in the years that followed, my definitions of what hate meant were drastically different. And I think that's pretty much the way it goes for everyone. Until you have those extreme moments. And I'm not saying everyone needs them. Because quite honestly, I don't really think you do. I mean, it may just be that you had an amazing relationship with your parents and so you know love through that. Or your grandparents took care of you and they, you know, they just instilled that in, into you. You just felt that love for them. I mean, you don't need kids, is what I'm saying. That was just my path. Um, until you know that extreme, I mean, hatred is really relative. I mean, honestly, in the end, it's relative, but you're able to see that scale, uh, that sliding scale of emotion clearer than you would previously. You know, I mean, it's, it's just the reality of it. I mean, some people live their whole lives through shit. And so they have no concept of what it means to love or hate because their entire existence is wrapped up in the gray that is the middle of that. That sort of bland, emotional middle of existence. And, and they, they continue pacifying their need uh, through television and through uh, movies uh, or video games or something. But if, if you can disconnect from that... There is some real power and authority in those two really sort of curious words, love and hate. And without knowing one, and this is really, I've said it like three times or something so far, but this is the last time. Without knowing one to the extreme, you have no clue what the other is to the extreme. That's love and hate for you. Um, let's move on to the Infernal Informant. Daily Lobo dot com Seriously. Trial against UNM begins. Sharon Warner sues over breach of contract by Luke Holman, New Mexico, 
Daily Logo. Last updated, uh, February 20th. UNM professor Sharon Warner is suing UNM for $1.5 million. Breach of contract. Following what her lawyer said is a mishandled whistleblowing complaint about sexual harassment committed by another professor. Warner's complaint, which was filed on September 2009, will be heard Monday through Friday of this week before a jury in the district court in Santa Fe. Warner filed an Office of Equal Opportunity complaint after she received an anonymous complaint letter. The authors claimed to be parents of a UNM student. The letter included pictures of Lisa D. Chavez, creative writing professor, posing as a dominatrix professor and disciplining, misbehaving students. According to the lawsuit, Chavez was identified as Mistress Jade in a local phone sex company, People Exchanging Power in 2008. On the People Empowering People website, this advertisement for Mrs. For Mistress Jade read, Do you want a biker bitch, an imperious goddess, or a stern teacher ready to punish unruly students? Uh, yes, please. In one photo, she posed with then-graduate student Liz Darrington. Warner's attorney, Arnold Padilla, said Warner is filing for damages, which could amount to between $500,000 and $1.5 million. Padilla said Warner lost her chairship after she complained about Chavez posting with Darrington. In 2009, Warner filed a lawsuit against UNM for retaliation, breach of implied contract, and breach of covenant of good faith. Padilla said Warner's complaints filed with the EOE were unsuccessful. Chavez still teaches creative writing classes at UNM. She was never found guilty of any wrongdoing in investigations conducted by UNM. In an email in September 2010, Chavez says that those who accused her of wrongdoing should accept the university's judgment. It is only a few people who continue to drag down our department by their refusal to let this matter rest, she said. Warner claims UNM is procedurally required to acknowledge the complaints she filed with OEO and that Graduate Student of Arts and Sciences policy prohibits sexual relationships between students and faculty. Chavez filed a complaint against Warner in October 2007 alleging discrimination. Chavez said Warner accused her of being immoral, canceled some of her classes, and gave her last choice when deciding what classes to teach. I've been the target of discriminatory practices by Sharon Ord Warner for 1.5 years, and this discriminatory behavior has, cre has created an increasingly hostile work environment, the complaint says. In the complaint, Chavez says the sexual harassment accusations are false. There is a current investigation going on, which I am being investigated for a fallacious charge of sexual harassment, the complaint said. This has spiraled out of control until I feel I am both under attack and being slandered badly enough that my career, both at UNM and in general, are at stake. Chavez said former chair of the English department, David Jones, failed to address her complaints after, I'm sorry, about Warner. UNM president David Schmidley, who was subpoenaed in the case, declined to comment. Chavez was unreachable by phone as of Sunday. Padilla said the university marginalized Warner and ignored her claims, along with the claims by other faculty and student. Quote, they violated policies and procedures in place, particularly policy 2200, which says that any employee who takes action on behalf of the university or students or faculty is entitled to do so 
without retaliation, he said. She suffered a great many personal and professional setbacks, coming from the chairman all the way up to the president. In November 2009, the Daily Lobo reported Warner's husband, Teddy Warner, filed a lawsuit against the university after his wife filed hers in September. He claims the university retaliated against him by cutting his pay by 20% because of his wife's activities, a cut that is burdensome when compounded by legal fees. Last year, a judge ruled his case will be decided after Sharon Warner's case is decided, Padilla said. That makes sense to me. Uh, UNM graduate student Carrie Culler sorry, Cutler, who will testify before the jury Friday, said Chavez spread false rumors alleging that Cutler planned to kill Darrington and that she was mentally ill. Chavez was Cutler's dissertation advisor, but she was dropped after the anonymous letter surfaced. Cutler filed an OEO complaint, but said the university ignored it. It's disappointing when governance and rules designed to protect us fail the way they fail here. She said, I'm saddened by how long this has gone on and to the extent to which the university has attempted to avoid its responsibilities. Cutler said she will testify in favor of Warner. I intend to talk about the ways the oversight has failed and hope that this will come to a resolution in a way that will fix some of these issues, she said. She said she considered filing a lawsuit against the university, but she could not find a lawyer willing to take on the university. Padilla said that this is not uncommon. The university relies on the fact that this is a giant institution, and they rely on the fact that the students and faculty don't have the resources to take them on. Huh. Um, um, um. Look, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm a little t- torn up about this, uh, to be quite honest. Um, this is a university. These are all adults. So behaviors that take place off campus are the concern of the adults. Uh, no one else's. Especially because it did not influence the school at all, except for those holding moral high ground, supposedly, air quotes there, claiming it to be. The fact that they're trying to get into other people's private business and stop them from private legal activities. That's the complaint. Like, at what point is it not okay to look at what someone else is doing in their private life and say, hey, you can't do that? Like, I'm getting so sick and tired of this. I mean, certainly, yes, as a Satanist, it pisses me off. uh, But just as a human being, I don't want my neighbor being able to look at what I'm doing and then... Uh, sue an institution for not having fired me over it. I mean, that's ridiculous. Okay, that being said, uh, I'm going to jump on the devil's advocate bandwagon here. Uh, put the shoe on the other foot here. Um, anyone who's hired signs a contract for employment, uh, certainly if you're a teacher, and you are expected to live up to what is in that contract. And yes, because we live in a world like we do, there are moral actions involved in that. Meaning, the institution that you're working for, the organization, in this case a university, is a business like any other. Don't let them fool you. They set a moral standard that represents their university. If you will not live up to that, then you are derelict of your responsibilities, and you are not deserving of a position. That's the bottom line. 
Now, what the institution did in this case, what the university did, was try to sweep it under the rug. For understandable reasons. It doesn't mean a damn thing about this woman's ability to instruct her class, her students, perform her duties. It doesn't matter, because it's all after hours on her personal time. Whether or not it involves grown adults who happen to be going to that university at the same time. Doesn't matter. Uh, the university saw it that way and they tried to get rid of it. Now, ultimately, to their detriment, because now they're up Shit's Creek without a battle, I mean, quite honestly. Um, if they just would have pulled this woman aside, this employee, and said, look, we have, it's been brought to our attention that you are performing or you are acting in conduct that is against the morals that you have signed to act under. We're either going to have to ask you to leave or to cease said conduct. Well, that would have been a reasonable response. And in that case, the woman could have made her choice. And would have avoided all of these legal fees and troubles that are now going to literally haunt them for the rest of their lives. Or until, you know, someone else does it. Um, but there's nothing wrong with it. Like, no one's being hurt, except for now, because of those on moral high ground. And it just goes to show you, man, that there's no such thing as common sense in our world. Like, you can't even say, okay, well, you know, they're, they're performing this activity that is harming literally no one. I may not like it. But it's not involving me, so I don't care. Move on with your life. No, we all have to get involved. We have to go up to people and say, I don't like what you're doing. It doesn't fit with my worldview. You have to stop. Or else you are oppressing me. Like your mere existence of doing said activity is somehow oppressing those not doing it. <laughs> it flies in the face of, of rational understanding of behavior. <laughs> it's, it's like a double negative. You're not doing it, yet because someone else is doing it, it is making you somehow dirty? I don't know. A, a sinner? You're not doing it, so who freaking cares? Like, this is so absurd to me. And this applies to everything in our world. Certainly as Americans, we see this every day, certainly in today's incarnation of the uh, Republican Party. It's disgusting, and it, it's it's sort of one of those things. I Certainly, it's the fuel to the fire on why everyone is becoming secular and uh, atheistic in nature. I mean, I think we all are anyway, but I'm just saying, even those who at one point had aligned themselves with a religious institution, asses like this, who are doing, um, claiming moral authority over other people, they're the ones causing everyone and their religious uh, or, or, or organization to be seen in a negative way and to be forced away from. So this is a good thing in that light, in that it lets everyone know what kind of assholes they're dealing with so they don't want to associate with them anymore, so they leave that organization, that church. But those people are still going to be here. It's, you know, it's that idea that, like, one person lets their dog shit in the park, uh, one person sees that and gets all pissed off, and then suddenly there's an ordinance, a city ordinance about it. Or one person is playing their music too loud, they don't have the balls to go tell them to turn it down, and then suddenly there's a city ordinance on noise. Why can't we just all be adults and react as adults? I know that's asking too much. I know we live in a world that is not controlled by adults. 
honestly, it's not. Not real adults. I mean, you may be an old person. Age-wise, you're an adult. But as far as your brain <laughs> development, no. No, no, no. Let us not fool each other. You are not an adult. All right. Anyway, so, you know, that's sort of my take on that. Uh, next article, California Girl 11 Dies Following Planned After School Fight. This is from MercuryNews.com, Silicon Valley, by Melissa Evans and Pamela Hale Burns. Um, posted uh, February 26th. Long Beach. An 11-year-old girl died after a pre-planned fight with another girl, also 11, in an alley near Willard Elementary School police said at a press conference Saturday night. The girl identified by friends as Joanna Ramos. Ramos? Ramos. I'll stop. Sustained undisclosed injuries after the off-campus fight Friday evening. Both of the girls then walked away. Some time later, family members noticed Ramos wasn't feeling well and drove her to a local emergency room. She underwent surgery Friday and was initially listed in critical condition, but was pronounced dead shortly before 9 p.m. Friday. Quote, There are times when words do not convey the sense of sadness we feel, Long Beach Mayor Bob Foster said at the press conference at a Long Beach Police Department. This is one of those times. Police had not made any arrests, but they interviewed the girl who engaged in the fight with Ramos, Deputy Chief Robert... <laughs> See, now I'm like trying to associate like Latin sounds with every name here. Uh, Robert Luna said about seven onlooker, onlookers were present at the time, and they had been interviewed as well. Police did not say what prom- prompted the fight, but friends said it was over a boy. Whoa, what? Two girls are fighting over a boy? Huh. i got to be honest. I did not see that coming. I, <laughs> I really didn't. Uh, quote, They were fighting over a boy, I told the teacher, and she said she would talk to all the girls on Monday, end quote, said Stephanie Guadalupe Soltero. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, who said she was friends with the victim. Long Beach Unified School District Superintendent, that's, that's a hell of a title, um, Chris Steinhauser, Hey, it's not Latin. Said there had been no indication that anyone at the school at 1055 Freeman Avenue... Why would they... I don't get that. Why do they even put the address? Like, I'm gonna... I didn't understand where it was when they said Willard Elementary School. So they give the address. I'm like, oh, right, that school. Yes, I remember now. Why would you even bother putting the address? That doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, Okay, anyway, was notified about the impending fight. The superintendent said letters would go out to the parents immediately and the counselors would be provided when students returned to class Monday. Our hearts and prayers go out to the family, Steinhauser said at the press conference. Police said the students were involved in an after-school program and at some point left the campus and went to an alley near K-5 school to fight. It was not clear whether Ramos returned to school or went home. Some students said bullying had been a problem at the school, but Luna would not confirm whether that was an issue in the case. He also did not know whether the girls had problems in the past. On Saturday, a shrine had been put up the front. Okay, so we are literally at the tail end of this article. Not once have they said how or why she died. Not once. Was she stabbed? When they were fighting, did the other girl stuff a bottle of pills down the girl's throat? Like, like nothing. 
I mean, it, if we're going to speculate, well, maybe she lost the fight. And so she was depressed because the other tougher girl got the boy. This is so weird, right? Like, two girls fighting over a boy. Um, and so what? Like, she kills herself over it? Like, there's a lot of unanswered questions that makes this article completely pointless for me to have read. <laughs> and certainly to have brought to your attention. Uh, I'll continue to the end. On Saturday, a shrine, once again, had been put up in front steps of Willard Elementary, which was, uh, which has about 800 students. Uh, again, just in case you didn't realize, that was at 1055 Freeman Avenue. Police said that they were working to interview anyone with information about the girls and what caused the fight. I thought they already said it was the boy. Like, here's what I don't understand. When someone asks you, so, um, what was the fight over? And the eight guys, or people, presumably just you know, generic people that were there tell you, oh, it was over a boy. And then later you come out to a press conference and say, oh, we're, we're not entirely sure um, what started the fight. They just told you what started the fight. It was a boy. Like, two girls were fighting over a boy. It's so insane. Is, are, are the, out of that 800, how many girls and how many boys? Is it so skewed in the girls' favor that the girls had to fight over a boy? And at what point did the boy just sit there and watch the girls fight, feeling like, yeah, yeah, they're fighting over me. <laughs> I'm a pretty badass uh, kid, 11-year-old. Like, this is so insane. Uh, we're still trying to put the pieces of this puzzle together, Luna said. The Los Angeles County Coroner <laughs> had not yet performed an autopsy. As of Saturday night, the coroner, I said it right that time, will determine the exact cause of death. Anyone with more information was asked to call Detectives Hugo Cortez or Peter Lakovich at 562... Yeah, that's right. They put the phone number in here. 570-7244. So if anyone's listening to my podcast in the Long Beach area that knows anyone that went to 1055 Freeman Avenue, Willard (laughs) Elementary, uh, call 562-570-7244 and let them know that this boy was why they fought over or if not. Alright, so that that's the article, and that's going to wrap up the informal informant. I have no... I really... Normally, I read these articles before I bring them to you. I did not today. Uh, I apologize for that. This was a non-information article. Completely lacking any type of anything. So, I apologize for that. Had I known it was going to be a milk carton uh, missing child advertisement, I would not have read it. Uh, but anyway, you know what? Maybe it was a little bit entertaining because of the absurdity of it. I mean, nothing really serious ever happens at 1055 Freeman Avenue anyway, so it's nice to see that something did happen at 1055 Freeman Avenue. It's so weird that they put the address. <laughs> so weird. Uh, you know, and who knows? I mean, maybe this was the first article that Melissa Evans and Pamela Hale Burns had written for the Daily Breeze and then picked up by MercuryNews.com. I will, uh... Be diligent. Much more diligent in the future. <laughs> Let's uh, move on to uh, Brian in the Creature Feature. Oh, God. No. Just me. <laughs> Did you know that after the heart stops beating, the brain can function for well over seven minutes? We got six more minutes to play. Why are you screaming when I haven't even cut you yet? Welcome to 
Creature Feature. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm being joined once again by friend of the show, Brian Moore. Brian, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Oh, thanks again for having me, Adam. It's good to hear from you again and, and see you on this newfangled Skype thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's always a pleasure. I have to preface this by saying my daughter's in the background. Um, the, the, the listeners may hear her screaming. She's actually not dying. She's just taking a bath, and sometimes that can <laughs> be more of a fuss. Well, that's not true, Adam, because the, the neat thing about Skype is I can actually see what's going on. And contrary to rumor, there are uh, virgins being sacrificed in uh, Adam's house. They're all really hot and really cute. And uh, boy, trying it's trying to keep that on the down low. But... That's true. But, but being a Satanist guy, uh, you know, it, it gets you all the chicks. So, uh, you know, just share some with the rest of us, Mr. Adam. <laughs> well, I, I, I have to say, the last time we talked, was the number one podcast of the entire year. In, as far as downloads, uh, I can't promise anyone listened to them, but it was downloaded more times than any other podcast I'd had to date. So, you're a popular guy. Oh, hey, thanks. Well, you know, it was fun doing it. Because, again, the neat thing about, you know, you meet a lot of people in your line of work, so do I, but when you meet another Satanist who you're kind of on the same wavelength with, it's... I, I had fun because it wasn't so much question and answer interview as it was, you know, two guys on the same page just uh, with a lot of common interests and uh, just talking, you know, so I, I, I really dug that. You know, again, I, I hadn't uh, met you before and we talked briefly, but once we got going, I thought, gee, you know, this is, uh, that's kind of the satanic way is you, you find this sort of scattered uh, tribe and you realize that you're cut from the same cloth as a lot of cool people and you'd probably be, wind up being friends in real life whether Satanism was a, a you know, a common factor or not so it's uh no I, I i really dug talking with you and it's great to talk with you again and uh, to see you you know yeah, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> really cool that's a cool thing uh, that's yep. what I love about Skype. Unfortunately, the audience is going to have to deal with audio only. <laughs> uh, well, for the ones who can't see us, Adam and I are these extraordinarily good-looking, classically handsome <laughs> Well, all right. Well, you know, maybe we won't win any beauty contest, but we're better than most. You know? <laughs> here, here. I actually will drink a glass of that. All right. Uh, I'll raise my glass and reload of that, too. <laughs> uh, yeah. For Satanists, we indulge. <laughs> here, here. Well, we left off last uh, discussion on uh, your personal story where you were actually leaving the West Coast, California, to the mysterious Midwest, uh, good old America. You were talking about, and this is what intrigued me most about uh, that early part of the conversation, was the time travel device um, that you were building. So first, let's talk a little bit about the move. How did that go? Any, any, any issues on that? No, and, and thanks for asking. That's really sweet. I don't know if it'll interest any of the listeners, but you and I certainly talked about it a lot and you know, on a personal level, you know, just being both dads and family men. You know, part of the thing that's hard when, when you move from anywhere is you leave your friends and uh you know, my kids are both grown, so I, you know, was leaving them behind. Although my, my daughter, uh Chloe, she actually did the road trip with me. So it was really kinda cool. You know, it was us and uh a U-Haul, and we were trailering the uh, 66 Cadillac behind us, and we had a, a cat in the cab with us. So uh, we drove from uh, the West Coast all the way to the American uh, Midwest, and um, I think we did the trip in about, it was two or three days, but it was solid, hard, 20-hour days driving. And, uh, you know, we, uh, no no really amazing adventures to, to speak of. You know, we sort of, uh, when we went through Vegas, you know, we, we passed, I think it's Groom Lake, where Area 51 was. Nice. So that was kind of neat. Yeah, we didn't go up close, but we were like, wow, that's 
it's a real place. You know, it's yeah. one thing to hear about it or read about it on the internet, but when you drive by, you're like, wow, that that's for real. And you see people parked out there with cameras and telephoto lenses, and they can only get so close. And then uh, I think we went through uh, uh, Vegas and then parts of Arizona and sort of joked because th there's a certain part in the country when you do a road trip where there's absolutely nothing there. <laughs> and so we started making making up stories about places we'd see, you know, these rundown houses that we decided they were every single one of them was a murder shack. And yeah. there was... <laughs> There was always some creepy guy who lived alone who, you know, tried to lure women in through eHarmony lived <laughs> Burger Shack. Yeah, so, fortunately, we, we didn't have to stop in any uh, weird towns, although there was a, a town, um, I think I, I mentioned I was going to be passing through Utah. Mm -hmm. It wasn't near, near your digs, but it was, uh, I think, on the outskirts. And uh, I, to this day, I don't remember what the name of this town was, but we called it Downtown Clown Town. Because there's this, uh, so I know it's it's weird. There's this uh, sort of convenience store gas station where the the logo is a clown wearing a fedora. We were like, like House of a Thousand Corpses, Captain Spaulding. Yeah, <laughs> seriously, yeah, exactly. You know, fried chicken and gasoline. And it was actually pretty normal looking, but we we thought, what kind of place in Utah has a clown for a logo? So we went in and you know got a cup of coffee and we gassed up the U-Haul. But I thought, man, I'm never going to be here again. So we started asking if they had anything like bumper stickers or T-shirts. Of course, they looked at us like we were nuts, like, why would you want a memento from this place? But they did actually sell shirts with their clown logo. Oh, nice. So, yeah, we, we had to. We bought a shirt, and uh, my daughter, Chloe, she put it on, and I let her keep it. I didn't want the thing. <laughs> we, we, we went through downtown Clown Town, survived, and, uh, you know, we eventually got to the desk destination okay but that would be the most uh, sort of eventful thing you know other than just seeing you know part of the country we'd never seen and you know for the most part yeah it's kind of boring nothing too exciting but you think wow you know you can sort of uh, if you have a bucket list say you know it's neat to uh, check off those uh, states you know yeah. places like Nebraska that you wouldn't think twice and it's it's beautiful country there's just not a whole lot of anything else beyond that beautiful country. Yeah, seriously yeah, uh, so but I mean, still part of just that, that traveling across country. I've I've done it uh, three times now, from from Utah to Georgia, and then Utah to um, uh, Kentucky, and it is just, I mean, certainly the road wears on you, but there's just this feeling of, of driving with that sunrise coming up. You've been driving for 24 hours, and there's just like this open road, this breath of fresh air, and I don't know, it's a little bit liberating, even though you have stuff to do when you get there. That period of time in between, it's just so nice to not have anything but you, the road, and whoever you're with. It, it is pretty amazing. You're absolutely right. And, and especially when you're doing a move, they don't, you know, a lot of U-Haul trucks, they don't really have CD players or iPod uh, docks, and you, you're sort of at the mercy of whatever's on the radio. And as you go through middle America, you get a lot of uh, country western stations and a lot of uh, Bible Belt stations. Yeah. So that was kind of it. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot. And after a while, again, you know, Chloe and I have a rule. If I like it, she'll hate it. If she likes it, I'll hate it. You know, and again, everything she'd want to put on, you know, you know, we, we joke each other. There's a lot of ball breaking, you know, it's like, you know, you know, she's she's from born and raised in LA, but she's got very much that Valley Girl accent. She says, Dottie, I'm gonna put on Rihanna. I'm like, Oh no, oh, are you trying to kill we gotta get there. Don't freaking kill me with your awful music and of course she'll put it on and you know, but but it's good times. And the neat thing about it too is uh 
when you and you, it sounds like you've probably done it more than I have. This is pretty much the only time I've done it. But when you do a road trip like that, you really bond with whoever you're in that car with. You know, yeah. especially with your kids. It's it's kind of cool. You're like, oh wow. And the older they get, it it's nice to uh, you know create that uh, stronger bond, even if there's nothing terribly exciting happen happening. You never forget it. You never forget all the. You know, the, the lousy gas stations and the awful coffee and, you know, the real creepy diners. And, you know, all that kind of adds up to where, you know, well, at the end of the day, you'll you'll probably remember it. Yeah, it was neat. In fact, I mean, since we're bringing up the move, I won't go on too long. But uh, when, when Chloe and I finally got to the house, we'd been on the road for about 45 hours straight. And it was, it was yeah, it was rough. Because I was driving and she didn't feel comfortable driving the truck. So she would tell me she was the navigator. She'd follow the map. So we finally got here about 6 a.m., and uh, we, the realtor wasn't in town to let us in the house. I didn't have the keys yet, and we fell asleep on the porch swing, literally fell asleep and woke up about 10 o'clock when he showed up, and real nice guy, and, you know, we, you know, we, he lets us in. And the first thing both Chloe and I have to do is go to the bathroom. <laughs> when I had been out a, few, a month or two before to see the house, all the electrical worked, all the plumbing worked, and so I didn't think twice, so... Anyway, I, you know, go to the bathroom on the first floor, flush the toilet, and it just overflows. Oh, and, no. And I remember standing there with Chloe, and I actually got tears in my eyes because we were both so tired. We were so in, in such strung-out shape. We looked at this toilet overflowing, and I started getting choked up, and then she started getting choked up, and I went, I looked at her, and I said, Chloe, did I just make the biggest mistake of my life? <laughs> and, and she started crying. So again, you know, it was just a seal that was broken, and I was able to fix it myself. When I'm not Mr. Wrenchhead, but you know, you 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 live in a house, you you fix, you figure out how to fix stuff because you have yeah. to. So we got it fixed, but it was one of those things where I'll never forget. It wasn't funny when it was happening, but then you know, she jokes about it now. She's like, "How's the toilet, Dad?" It's like, "It's fine. It works." <laughs> I didn't make a mistake by buying this house. So anyway. yeah, that so, would be the biggest fear. Is- I mean, traveling across country, and then you get there, and it just breaks. <laughs> and, that, and, and that's exactly how it went. Exactly. It was like, oh, my God, what the hell did I do? So, yeah, it's just, you know, it's it's funny in hindsight, but I guess everything is. It's sort of like, uh, you know, Kennedy, Kennedy jokes. They're not funny in 1963, <laughs> yeah. but years later, they're funny. I mean, what's the old joke? You know, did you know Kennedy was Jewish? It's like, no, I didn't. It's like, yeah, he was shot in the temple, man. It's like, oh, my God. You wouldn't dare tell something like that in 1963. <laughs> so other other than the, the seal and the toilet, how's the house coming along as a whole? Oh, it's coming along great, man. I mean, the, the cool thing about it is, I, uh, you know, it's it's very much in small-town America, but uh, my, my friend who lives right across the street is Warlock Smalley. He bought a, a huge Victorian, and he was the one who told me about the place that I bought. So we've got, uh, you know, kind of this very, uh, you know, quiet, satanic community. So it's, you know, really cool having someone right across the street who, you know, like you and I are talking. You know, it's just, so, you know, a brother who's on the same page. So it's cool. But uh, the house is coming along great. You know, it's definitely a learning experience. In California, you don't have things like radiators or uh, boilers or having to worry about putting a new roof on. And uh, like today, you know, it's been a real mild winter, but out of nowhere, it snowed. I think we got close to probably a foot and a half in about a little over an hour. 
Jeez. So it's, yeah, things like that that you really learn to adjust to as far as putting snow tires on your car and having warmer clothes. But the house itself is great. I mean, there's so many cool antique stores out here that if the aesthetic of the past is your thing, man, you can clean up. They sell, you know, all original stuff from the 20s and the 30s oh. for dirt cheap. So it's, if, if collecting antiques and filling a house is, uh, you know, with those things, if that's your thing, you, the Midwest is definitely for you. So it's really cool, you know, just one room at a time. And uh, most of the house is done up like the 1920s, but my spare uh, bedroom upstairs, um, I'll try not to go off too far on a tangent. I'm doing it in a 1940s sort of flea bag motel room in oh, honor nice. of my friend. Yeah, Jimmy Vargas. He's this really cool crooner that a lot of Satanists know about. He does a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, music of his own, uh, his own writing, his own composition. But uh, it's, you know, pictures of him, pictures of the Black Dahlia, first edition Raymond Chandler books. Uh, wow. I got a real crappy uh, old bed that was actually in a, uh, an institution, uh, an asylum where they put insane people. Oh, so there's lots of very real things that have their own resonance as far as objects in their own history that I've put in this room. So uh, if you're a solid pal or a good-looking gal, you can come out and stay. And uh, <laughs> if you can last through the night, you can stay in the Jimmy Vargas suite and uh, enjoy a, a time travel trip back to 1947, at least in that part of the house. So it's it's fun. It's uh, going along with what everything Anton LaVey was about, which is uh, total environments mm -hmm. and creating those. And, uh, you know, the house certainly is, is going as far back to the... Uh, teens and the 20s but uh, there's little little areas like i said the the 40s room you know yeah. and, uh, so it's it's kind of fun you know one thing i love about uh, objects of history uh, you know anything with age is with that i like to think anyway comes really just the atmosphere of the era so you know you like you were saying going to an antique shop and seeing some old furniture when you put that into a room you literally start transforming that area and then just the mere uh, walking into the room does really just sort of take you back to that time. And I like to think that maybe there's even a little bit of residual energy from the people that may have owned it or, or the area that it was originally in. And old houses are amazing for that. Was that ever um, uh, a thought for you when you first moved in? And, and is it uh, like and the idea of a haunting even uh, associated with this house? Absolutely, Adam. You know, you hit on, on something really specific and something I, I believe in personally. I don't know if it's uh, necessarily a satanic viewpoint, but I, I think you're right. I, I believe objects do have a resonance. You know, I, I, there's this um, uh, website called supernaut.com. Uh, Supernaut is the same spelling as the Black Sabbath song, and it's uh, true crime collectibles. And there, there's a number of things on there. One thing that always sort of piqued my interest was a job application filled out by James Oliver Huberty. Uh, for those who don't know, James Huberty is the man who uh, shot 21 people at a McDonald's in San Ysidro, in California, in 1984. Anyway, I don't know how this website or whoever that you know was selling it got a hold of this application, but they did. It's been reprinted in a few true crime books, and I thought, wow, I always had this, you know very keen interest in Huberty and what he did and I thought what if you got that application would you feel any kind of you know bad vibe because I think he was very much a, a negative person to do something like that absolutely some people have you know if they could talk I'm sure they'd claim they'd have a good reason for uh, doing something so horrible but from everything that I'd read on Huberty he was just bad news I mean he's like you know the everyone's got a neighbor like this guy who's just not friendly he's mean he's never has a nice word to say anyone so, you know and it's kind of like um 
if you go to a murder house or a suicide house, something so awful happened there that's connected to the house or that object where, yeah, I think stuff like that does linger. Um, years ago, uh, there was this, uh, it was this sort of this young stoner kid when I had Arkham Studios going on in Los Angeles and, you know, had a studio that people could actually go to. Um, he he came by. He knew I was there, and he had these candle holders. They're you know very real awful, shitty, heavy metal looking things. Stuff that no self respecting person would have in their house. You know, just tacky and awful. But anyway, he wanted to bring them just because he was a nice guy, and he thought I might like them. And uh, immediately when he handed me these things, I got a, just a bad vibe off of them. And I said, "Where'd you get these?" And he goes. Oh, they were in this, uh, you know, a buddy of mine, he lived in this uh, sort of garage, and, uh, you know, he wound up, you know, he, I can't remember if the guy went to jail, but there there was just this, a bad scene surrounding him, and, it, and whatever it was, I don't know if I was reading too much into it, but I could feel it, and, uh, he, you know, I, I thanked him, I thought, you know, said, wow, that's really cool, thank you, and the minute he left, I said, you know, I, I'm getting rid of these things, I don't want them around, seriously, so as far as, you know, the, the house itself, absolutely no bad vibe. I don't know if anyone died here. You'd think being a 100-year-old house, chances are people, you know, they may not have gone to the hospital. Someone might have passed away. Yeah. But um, uh, I don't know. I've tried to find out. It's a small town. Everyone I've met has virtually either lived in my house or, <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. I mean, the my insurance agent, you know, his, his ex-wife owned it. You know, that's who I oh. bought it from. Um, the guy who worked at the utility company, when I went to get the gas turned on, he lived here. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Everyone's been in this house because it's right on Main Street. So, And, and I've asked people, Do you, did anyone die or anything like that? And they said, no, no. If anything, the doctor who built it uh, was the county coroner for four years. And I went, okay, maybe that has some resonance. But, again, it... it I've never gotten one bad night thinking, you know, if you just, if you're at a certain place, like in a house and you just feel something, yeah. never felt anything bad. The same with bringing the antiques, nothing negative at all. And if I did feel something bad, I think I'd get rid of it, to be quite honest. Because like you said, if there's a negative energy associated with something, I think it does linger. I really do. And I don't know if that's natural or if it's just something we can't explain, but yeah, I mean, as uh, Bela Lugosi said in Dracula, there are many things under the sun. <laughs> Indeed. I, I believe that, man. Yeah, I really do. It's actually stuff like that, that, and I'm sure for you as well, I mean, that's why we, we like H.P. Lovecraft. That's why we like science fiction. That's why we like uh, even the occult itself. Uh, it's just because it shares, it, it, it takes those ideas that we don't really understand and, and necessarily never will, uh, because maybe there's just not an understanding that we can comprehend, and it applies a story to it that we can understand. And so it's just, you know, living this narrative of, 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 of fantasy and, and mystery, and it's, it's, it's fantastic. You're right. I mean, it really does go hand in hand with our interests. I, I, you know, I believe everyone who's a, a Satanist has got to have some interest, whether it's passing or heavy in the macabre. You know, whether it's mm -hmm. uh, literature or films or music. You know, of course, it's all interesting to us. I think we tend to be like if we were in what some folks would call a haunted house. I think we'd be a little bit less afraid of it and more inclined to. Kind of roll with it. So let's talk about uh, your projects. You've been a busy man right after this move, too. Like, you didn't even miss a beat. You just kept going. So it, it looked like um, 
one of the first things you did when you just started settling in was the uh, Abdul Al, Al hold on <laughs> Abdul Al Hazred. Uh, you, you, right? you said it right, which is admirable considering we're, we're both imbibing in the uh, the devil's <laughs> elixir tonight. Yeah, I mean, and again, you know, there, I, there's no magic to it. One of the reasons I jumped into that immediately was uh, I had uh, three jobs lined up doing work for the toy industry, and every single one of them fell through within the first week that I got here. So, yeah, it was that's real life. I mean, it was alarming, and I thought, oh, my God, I, I've got this mortgage. Now what do I do? So I... You know, being a Satanist, man, you, you better land on your feet, not on your knees. And I thought, well, I better get off my ass and generate some work. If no one's going to give me a job, I better create one and fast. So that was the impetus that got that going. Uh, I'd always wanted to. And in L.A., I was, you know, tied up with some things that just the creative well wasn't really filling up again. But moving out here was a, a good thing as far as, you know, getting, you know, peace of mind and easing the burden financially because the cost of living is a lot less out here. So that's that was the first thing I did. Uh, my daughter took a few pictures of me in the pose, and uh, I just started uh, thinking, well, you know, Lovecraft pieces seem to sell. And uh, I'd actually, um, this goes into uh, a friend, uh, Magister Jim Sass. Uh, he was really helpful as far as uh, providing um, um, reference photos. There's a uh, uh, Magister Sass is into uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it right it's uh, Sufi musicians and uh, very uh, Middle Eastern type uh, music and he had sent me a picture of this great guy and again I hope I'm pronouncing it right called Zain Sahur and uh, my god I mean if you look him up I think the spelling is Z-A-I-N and the last name might be Z-A-H-O-O-R and uh, he said if you want to see what Abdul Hazard looks like this is your man and I looked him up, and I thought, my God, this guy's really scary looking. So uh, there was a little of uh, Sass's recommendation on Zane Sahur. Uh, uh, certainly uh, our old pal Diablos Rex uh, uh, played a part in the aesthetic of it. It was funny. Uh, uh, Rex just wound up being uh, manifesting himself in the clay, even though I didn't specifically set out for it to look like Diablos Rex. It did. It was very strange. And then once I put on the turban, it, it looked different. But, uh, yeah, he really came through the clay. So, yeah, I uh, finished that and uh, put that up and then uh, started uh, the next one up was um, working on a uh, Cthulhu sort of uh, statue that, um, you know, you, you go where the audience wants you to. I mean, you, you bring your passion to it where you'd like to sculpt, but so many people had requested a, a Cthulhu or a new Cthulhu because I've sculpted it before. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, I, I feel like other artists had sculpted him so so much better than I could. Uh, Harold Arthur McNeil sculpted a beautiful Cthulhu. And uh, Randy Bowen had released a version of uh, Stephen Hickman's uh, sculpture years ago that I thought was, was the earmark as far as how good it could be. And I thought, well doesn't mean I have to necessarily have to sculpt it to try and beat those sculptures because it's not a competition, but, you know, it forces you to kind of think a little bit differently in a different direction. So that's what I did. Sculpted an, another Cthulhu, and, and people seem to like that all right. And, uh, yeah, that's that's the latest one. So I, I hope people like it. i am you know, been shooting little videos that I'll post on YouTube, and uh, nice. people seem to respond to that. They seem to like to see how the, uh, the process happens, where it goes from, sculpting it to uh, molding it to casting it and uh, just having fun so it's neat to sort of uh, 
have folks along for the ride, at least on, on that end, you know, where you post pictures and such, where they can kind of see uh, the process of, of how you do things. And that's that's certainly how I learned to uh, push the skill level, is uh, when people were really open to sharing information on how you make stuff. So I, I try and, uh, now that I'm becoming one of the, uh, oh, God, this kills me to say it, one of the <laughs> older guys. <laughs> You know, when you've been around a while, you realize it's like, yeah, you become one of the older guys, and the, the most valuable thing you can do, aside of you know trying to do good art, is to really share what you've learned along the way. Because if you know, I wouldn't be where I'm at if if uh, there were other weren't kind artists, mm-hmm. you know, showing me things that they've learned the hard way. And so you realize you've got to give back. And so many younger people ask, "How do you do this stuff?" So you think, "Well, I'll take pictures and explain it." And uh, you know, that's, I think that's the way of the world, you know, just uh, you, you have to give back, you know, for the next generation to be able to get their skill level to a, a higher thing. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. It's, it's neat to be able to do that. You just don't think that you're going to be one of the old guys so goddamn soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the reasons why um, you get such amazing responses to everything that you do is because of that interaction that you, you're you willing to give. I mean, so often it seems we have amazing artists that, and I wouldn't even necessarily say that they guard their trade, but they just feel like they're, they are their trade. And so giving away information on that is like giving away a piece of themselves almost. So it's nice when you can find, one, an amazing artist that is willing to share, but, but also interact with the community that they're really creating this works for. I think that's what makes not only a successful artist, but a successful businessman. I remember the last conversation we had also, we had talked about the Anton LaVey statue, and you had mentioned where there might be a couple more. Well, I went out and snagged one that's sitting right behind me on my bookshelf, um, and then you released, uh, an, you did another edition, uh, and this, I believe, was a steel finish. What what really provoked that? What- People have been hounding me for a long, long time. You know, they'd say, "Are are are the are the Levee statues still available?" And they, I had done the bronze edition and pewter edition, and I said, "No, they're not." And uh, but then, you know, you and I had talked, and I had mentioned, but there's a place in California that still has a few of, I think maybe the pewter editions or whatever they were. And I'm glad that you got one. In fact, we're on Skype; I can see it right behind you next to your amazing uh, sigil of Baphomet. It makes me feel good. You know, it, it it really does. When people who really dig the art get a hold of this stuff, that's what the lasting thing is. I mean, yeah, I mean, when you can make a living on it, it's great. But when the right people get it, that's the payoff. It really is. So anyway. Yeah, I had a living to make, and uh, so many people kept literally hounding me about it. I thought, well, maybe I should. So I put the word out on Facebook, you know, of all things. Uh, okay, if I do this, what color do you guys want to see it? And everyone wanted the, the pewter version again. I thought, well, a steel version, it's sort of a white metal, not a yellow metal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I threw it out there. People said yes, and I said, okay, I'll do 10, because 50... When you commit to 50 of a statue, it's it's a big investment. You've got to um, you know make a lot of investment in the mold yeah. and the casting resin. I thought, well, maybe 10 would be good because they'll sell out quickly and people will want them, and that's exactly what happened. So uh, yeah, I said 50 uh, earlier. I apologize about that. My number was off. Oh, no, no. That, quite all right. But, again, I didn't want to make a whole lot of them because then you're tied into having to make another 50. And I thought, well, 10 would be good because they'll they'll sell out fast. It'll, you know, create the feeling of I better get one now before they're sold out. And that's exactly what happened. And, again, pe- people are so darn nice when it comes to my art. I mean, when you're an artist, a working artist, you're lucky if you can sculpt or create three or four hours a day. 
The rest of the hours a day, you're a salesman. That's exactly what you do because you, that's the truth of it. I mean, if you don't promote it, if you're not a good businessman, you're not going to sell your art. You can have a, a Rembrandt sculpture, but if you don't let people know that it's there and it's available, you're not going to move the units and you're not going to pay your, your mortgage or your rent or your phone bill. So that's the thing. You know, in this day and age, too, I mean, I've got a, a great uh, website that's uh, very uh, – my webmaster is the Amazing Magister Frost. He does a fantastic job of maintaining that. He's, he's so been so good to me. I'm so grateful. But it's interesting the way the web uh, marketplace goes. You can have a website, but where people are these days are Facebook. Yeah. So that's I created a page on Facebook and uh, am promoting it constantly, daily. That's the reality of being a businessman and promoting your work is you've just got to be in touch with your audience and being willing to listen to what they want even if it's not what you want. What ultimately matters, yeah, you can sit there and sculpt whatever you want all day long, but if you're not selling it, it doesn't do you a damn bit of good. So the neat thing about Facebook, it's like you said, you're immediately in touch with the people who might enjoy your work, and you can be smart enough to listen to what they want. That's what I try and do. So anyway, yeah, the the edition of the Steel uh, version of LeVay sold out immediately, and that's uh, ten more in the uh, mountain of back orders that I always <laughs> And again, so long as we're on the subject, again, um, one thing I always, uh, you know, adhere to satanically is the edict uh, that I brought up the last time: responsibility to the responsible. Yeah. You know, I decided to take the next few months off from creating new work and doing nothing but honoring the uh, the orders that people have sent in money for, which is uh, whether it's eBay or Facebook or. People who hit the website is uh, there's only enough hours in the day to get so much done, and I realize the next few months have to be dedicated to doing nothing but filling back orders. Since you moved to this new town, um, you've actually thought about constructing larger than 12 inch or 14 inch. Do you want to talk to that? Speak to that a little bit. Sure thing. And where that goes is, uh, you know, you and I have talked about H.P. Lovecraft and uh, the amazing uh, influence his work has had on people. I've always been a Lovecraft fan, and for for years people have said, you should do a full-size Lovecraft statue. And that's it's very easy to entertain that notion, and it's a lot of hard work. It's hard enough doing a 12-inch figure, but when you think about doing a life-size uh, bronze figure, it's number one, it's very expensive, and number two... You've got to find a place that's willing to accept it. Um, you know, again, creating it is no problem. I mean, it, it takes a little more planning to do a life-size sculpture and a lot more money and materials. But what I found is uh, I've presented to the city of Providence, Rhode Island, uh, the idea of doing a life-size statue of H.P. Lovecraft since he's the, you know, their favorite son as far as the, the, the most famous author to come out of there. The hardest part has been finding the right government entity or private party to say, yeah, put your life-size statue on my property and make sure when you do, you get insurance so that if you know, some kid climbs on it, it's not going to fall over and, and kill him and crush him. That's been the hardest part. Um, uh, I'm in, in talks with the Department of Arts, Culture, and Tourism with a very nice lady and explained what I wanted to do. And where this lady and her team and I have come up uh, against a brick wall is just finding a place to say, yes, we'll take it. Because they don't pay you. You've got to raise the money to make your bronze statue. And you basically, in a nutshell, you bring it to them on a forklift and they say, put her there. And that's where you move the forklift and you put it there. 
The thing is, the what's amazing, the first uh, location we found that uh, this lady in Providence in the Department of Arts, Culture, and Tourism, uh, she found a library, a beautiful old library that's about, oh gosh, it, it was made 100 years ago, I think. And uh, it's got sculptures in it. And she pitched it to him, and we didn't hear back from one week, then two weeks, then three weeks. And if anything I've learned in this process is it's patience. Three weeks later, we finally get a very short email reply that says, we like the idea, the, you know, we, we, you know, we love the idea of Lovecraft being a statue, but we're afraid if you put it in here, it's going to bring in throngs of the wrong kind of people. And I thought... Wrong kind of people? What the hell does that mean? So we asked them to elaborate, and they said, we're a library. We don't want crowds of people lighting candles and placing <laughs> at a shrine to H.P. Lovecraft. And I, At first I thought, you snobs, fuck you. You know, how is that a bad thing, getting people into a library to see a statue of an author? My God, yeah. what's it going to make them read, for Christ's yes. sake? And uh, you know that my you know then again I thought boy you know if you wanted to put a coke machine in the lobby I'll bet they'd say yes yeah. but they said no to the uh, idea of Lovecraft so we had to go find uh, another location and right now it's a toss up between City Hall where they do allow you to put it, uh, sculptures in or a private uh, private property we're looking at um, I think where Lovecraft's last residence uh, which was 66 College Street oh, wow. the building itself was moved onto the grounds of Brown University and Brown University has the largest repository of Lovecraft's letters uh, uh, autographed manuscripts that sort of thing so like I said before I've learned patience and this stuff doesn't happen overnight you know you can email as much as you want and call as much as you want but they get back to you when they're ready to get back to you. So right now it's um, uh, uh, be starting a Facebook page and a uh, Kickstarter campaign to actually raise the funds to do it. But in the meantime, we don't know where we're going to put it. So we oh, hope man. it's in Providence and we hope it's somewhere that has something to do with Lovecraft. But uh, like I said before, it's, it's an exercise in patience, and that's the hardest part because you want it to happen right now, but then yeah. you realize it don't. <laughs> but still, I mean, worst case scenario, you end up creating this amazing piece of art that helps you sell for a place to put it. You know what I mean? I mean, so you raise the funds, you create the work. I'm sure that would that that would help influence it in the end. I would imagine. The, you're right, Adam, and that's my hope. I mean, originally, I didn't want to start the Kickstarter campaign until we had had a, a place in writing that had committed to accepting it. They call it a gift of public work, which means, yeah, we'll take your free statue and get all the publicity, which is funny. That's the, yeah, exactly. That's the way it should be. But, you know, and uh, it's been a toss of whether to do a, a life-size bust of Lovecraft on a pedestal, which can very easily be put inside a building yeah. or a life-size six-foot statue which becomes logistically a little bit tougher because when you do that you've got to ask someone to dig up part of the sidewalk pour concrete and you're fixing this into the ground where a rabid Lovecraft fan who's got access to a tow truck can't <laughs> yank this thing out so anyway that's where it's at now so hopefully it'll all happen I'm sure it will it, it, during this year but it's uh like I said, it's one thing to make a little 12-inch sculpture in your in your house or your workshop, but boy, when you get other people involved and it becomes something public, there's so much more to consider, and it's uh, 
it's it's work, that's for sure. Before we uh, close this down, you had mentioned uh, briefly when we talked the other day about a public ritual. Can you uh, sort of the closing of a gallery or something? Am I correct? Absolutely. Yeah. There's uh, in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. There's this really cool gallery called Finders Creepers, uh, run by a friend of uh, Warlock Smalley's, uh, of Reverend Daniel Bird, uh, of myself, uh, this lady named Erin Bowman. Uh, for the last two years, she's uh, kept this gallery called Finders Creepers going. That's uh, uh, She has art uh, shows there every month and a lot of satanic art, and she's an amazing gal. Well, the economy being what it is, it's been very hard for her to keep a, a brick-and-mortar store uh, going, like we, we're all well aware. And uh, last month, I did a fundraiser for her. I showed a lot of Lovecraft films, and uh, she had a Lovecraft art show. And we raised money, but unfortunately, it wasn't enough for her to keep her business going uh, as, as a retail store. She'll still keep a, an online presence. But um, anyway, she decided to let her lease uh, go ahead and uh, end in uh, March of next year. And her last art show that she's doing is a show called The Going to Hell Art Show, where it's very much a devil-themed and a Satan-themed show. And she asked, and she said, hey, you know, you're a member of the Church of Satan. Do you think you could do a little something? And she put it, and I said, well, what do you want me to do? And she said, well, at the end of the night, would you be willing to do some sort of a, a public... Ritual like a black mass, and I said, "Well, a black mass is really something personal that one does to purge baggage, but what I could possibly do would be a compassion ritual for success." And she said, "Well, you do it," and I said, "Well, I, I can certainly do it, but I've got to get the okay from our uh, 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 Magus and our Magistra, uh, Peter Gilmore and Peggy Nadramia, before I do something like that, because usually you do it in ritual chamber, and." Uh, I wrote to Peter Gilmore, and he very, you know, kindly said yes. He's always been so great in the past. And I explained what I wanted to do, which was a uh, ritual for success for uh, Aaron Bowman's continued success. And uh, as I said before, she's always been very sympathetic towards the satanic and uh, never made any judgments. So he said, yes, go ahead. So on uh, March 10th at uh, Finders Creepers Art Gallery in Des Moines, Iowa, I believe the address is 515 18th Street. I think. You can look it up, uh, the Finders Creepers Gallery, but I'll be there at the end of the night. Uh, that'll be their last uh, day that they're open to the public, and we will be ringing it out with a uh, satanic ritual. And uh, if any Church of Satan members would like to come, they're welcome to. Uh, I'll be there. My hope is that uh, Warlock Smalley will be there. He's out of the country right now, but hopefully he'll be back in town because he's an amazing in individual, uh, very much a mover and a shaker in the satanic uh, forefront. And um, I'll be doing a ritual for success. So uh, if uh, you'd like to, feel free to stop by for a great evening of uh, art and uh, meeting a lot of awesome artists. And uh, I look forward to meeting anyone who might be satanically inclined. And it's nothing that's... Uh, it's not a money-driven thing. It's uh, a gesture. Mm -hmm. As the old saying goes, a beau gest, a magnificent gesture to someone who's been very... Uh, um, Proactive in promoting satanic interests. Thank you so much for joining me. It's always the greatest of pleasures, Brian. Uh, Adam, and again, I really appreciate the forum, and I, I uh, hope I'm not boring anyone with my very uh, long-winded rants because I know they are. But you know, the, the fact that uh, you know, you again, you you deserve acknowledgement and credit for pe for keeping nine cents going and and giving so many 
Satanists who are trying to do good things, whether it's music or art or writing or filmmaking or promoting the philosophy. You you give uh, us members a voice and a platform to uh, you know make this like speaker's corner in Hyde Park, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what it comes down to. But uh, your work is good too, and uh, you know we all of us listening, and I listen to the shows too. It's very much appreciated, and. Uh, Again, for you too, the unseen and unpaid hours to, that go into uh, creating these shows and editing them and making sure I, our Skype works and you know it's, uh, you know, it, it's all uh, taken in stride and, and so appreciated and, and and hopefully you know your good example and your good work inspires others to uh, do the same thing in in, in putting solid and valid uh, voices that have something that we're passionate about saying you know mm-hmm. you know the fact that. Uh, you know, without you, it just we'd be blogging on on Facebook, and no one would care. But the fact that you do give us a voice for people to listen to it is so appreciated. And uh, hopefully, we can we can all keep this juggernaut going into the you know the next year and the decade beyond that. And hopefully, we can uh, live up to uh, uh, everyone likes to say I'm part of the alien elite. Well, to me, that's something you don't say lightly. It's something you work your ass off to live up to. So thank you for uh, allowing so many of us to do our best to live up to that. And uh, certainly the Ninth Cent Show lives up to that in uh, every respect. So thank you, too, Adam. It means a lot. Thank you very much for that. Um, and again, in the future, I definitely want to have you back on. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of other things we can be uh, talking about and. Uh, uh, doing here on the show. It's all about chicks and cars, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Right, well, you have a fantastic night. Hail Satan. Hail Satan, Adam. And uh, to all our listeners, uh, just keep uh, fighting the good fight moving forward and hail Satan. That interview was uh, amazing. And I actually cut literally like an hour off of it. And and this is even you know long as far as my show is concerned. Um, we continued to talk about residual energy a lot, which is really fascinating. I, I'm sure I'm going to fit into another show at some point. We talked a lot about uh, Megas Gilmore, Peggy Nadromia, and the Church of Satan uh, structure. That I know I'm going to get to uh, on another show, though I cannot say when. I, I, I We really briefed some topics that are... Um, important to us individually in very different ways, but also important to Satanists and the Church of Satan in general. So I think I I might want to wrap that up in um, a very special, significant format. Um, I might actually throw that together for something uh, with some you know words from other members. So look forward to that in the future. I will ultimately be releasing the unedited version of this interview, as I do with all of the interviews, through Nine Cents interviews, though I cannot say when. Uh, Suffice it to say, it was a very entertaining uh, and powerful conversation that I hope you all enjoyed, uh, even with the length. And with that, yet again, that's going to do it for another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I would really love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the Satan Net, 
Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for nine cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. You can also subscribe via iTunes by searching 9 cents. Don't forget to leave a rating or comment if you do. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com and online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I am your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan!